Summer 1990 A teenage boy in trouble An evil that only comes out at night Only a straight-to-VHS movie can save him From A. Kale, the author of Beware the Night Bad Dreams A thrilling horror novel now available on Amazon. Rated PG-13 for some thematic elements and mild violence. You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast, Pocket Edition which is a shorter episode, but packed with all the things that you uh, love about the podcast. So let's begin. I previously talked about some of the Hitchcock movies that I rediscovered recently, uh, specifically the black and white movies that Hitchcock made in England before he came to Hollywood and made his first feature there with uh, David Uselznik in 1939, a somewhat underwhelming movie called uh, Rebecca, but some people love it. I'm not really that fond of Rebecca, but I want to talk about another one of, uh, of these black and white movies that Hitchcock made in England, Recently, I had a chance to to rewatch uh, his movie Murder, made in 1930, and it is one of the first sound movies made in the UK. Uh, before that, Hitchcock had made the Blackmail the previous year, 1929, and uh, that was also a very very interesting movie, very entertaining and. Uh, it has become one of my favorite uh, black and white Hitchcock movies uh, made in, in the UK. Uh, Murder was first released in 1930 and is an almost forgotten black and white film which Hitchcock uh, co-wrote and directed. I had only watched it, I think, about 10 years ago and it didn't really leave an impression on me at the time when I watched it. Part of the reason, I think, was I was really getting into Hitchcock at the time. And uh, I'd watched a lot of his quote-unquote classics, most of which uh, were made in Hollywood in, in the 1950s. And... I think coming off watching movies like Vertigo and Shadow of a Doubt and uh, North by Northwest and uh, The Birds, which is one of my favorites. So after watching these, you know, flashy, big budget uh, Hollywood movies made by Hitchcock, which are very, very much, they feature the Hitchcock style, they are technically marvelous and they are 
you know, they contain all the, the, the trademarks of the Hitchcock style. But after watching them, and then at the time, I mean, that was like 10 years ago, and after watching them and then going back to his, you know, more modestly budgeted films in, made in, in the UK in the 1920s and 30s, I think those movies made in the UK suffered by comparison, you know, to the technical razzle-dazzle of, of, of his Hollywood movies. But now, with, with the benefit of... The, 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 the time that has elapsed uh, between watching these, you know, big Hollywood classics and then going back now to the black and white movies, I can appreciate the movies that he made in the UK with the limited resources that he had at the time and the limited technology that was available at the time. I can now, you know appreciate them and uh, and really get into them for what they what they uh, are basically and what they are are you know trailblazers and they are fascinating to watch because by watching those movies you can you know clearly see the evolution of Hitchcock's style. And Murder from 1930 is a prime example of, of that because it's, it's basically, although it's basically forgotten and mainly remembered for the bit of trivia of Hitchcock having a full orchestra playing behind the camera, and the scenes where, where music where music was needed, uh, like the the scene where Sir John is shaving and he has the radio on. Uh, in that scene, there was a full orchestra playing behind the, the camera to be so, so Hitchcock and his crew uh, could capture that the, the sound of the radio uh, on film. Because at the time, the technology didn't really allow for post-production mixing and recording so that bit of trivia is basically the most famous thing about murder now in in, in the minds of of most hitchcock fans and most movie uh in the minds of most movie buffs or at least casual movie uh, movie buffs but murder deserves much more recognition and is is, is honestly ripe for rediscovery it deals with one of Hitchcock's favorite themes, the wrong man. In this case, actually, it's a wrong woman uh, who is wrongly accused and later convicted of murder. And one of the jurors uh, who sentenced her to death, Sir John, uh, wonderfully played by Herbert Marshall in, in one of his you know, least flashy roles and one of his most touching roles, Sir John feels guilty about going along with the rest of the jury as he doesn't really believe she is guilty when he makes the decision to convict her, you know, under the peer pressure of his fellow jurors. So she's sentenced to death and right before or a few days before she's 
you know, scheduled to 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 be executed, he has like a, a crisis of conscience or a rising, an escalating uh, crisis of conscience that's made worse by him, you know, getting a piece of information that basically confirms or, you know, solidifies his suspicion that that woman is not guilty, that that woman was wrongly convicted. So I don't want to say any more about the plot because the plot is very interesting. And the film was a wonderful surprise to me because it is it is one of Hitchcock's most humane films and it contains some wonderful writing by him and his co-writers and it has some wonderful characters and, and performances and Hitchcock deals with the subject matter with a gentleness and a maturity that is basically lacking in, in, in most of his later work especially in his Hollywood features where he sometimes took his knack for dark humor a bit too far. It also lacks uh, Hitchcock's showy technical touches because there are no set pieces really with the exception of uh, a scene at the circus uh, at the climax of the movie which is a very minor set piece visually the film is just you know it flows and it has some terrific compositions and the way Hitchcock's uh, visuals and you, you know tell the story and the way Hitchcock uses the stationary camera in that movie to, to tell the story because he uses a, a technique that was very popular at the time because, you know, sound was very new and the cameras were very bulky and moving the camera while recording sound, uh, you know, was, was problematic because the cameras actually made a lot of noise. So a lot of directors basically at the time just covered the scene with, with, with a, you know, with a, with a stationary camera. Basically, they just panned the camera left and right or tilted uh, the, the, the camera on, on its mount up and down. But Hitchcock uses this, this, this you know, limited frame of movement with the pans and the tilts in a very clever way to, to keep the story going and to create this dynamic that's very interesting to watch, how, you know, how he changes the compositions just by moving the camera a little bit, panning it a little bit to the right or to the left, in a way that most directors at the time didn't really, you know, use the camera in that way, in that very, you know, controlled way that, that Hitchcock, uh, you know, used the camera with at the time. And it's very apparent uh, in Murder. And of course, uh, and of course, uh, montage, you know, plays a huge part in, in the movie. He also uses a lot of editing tricks and uh, the editing, although a bit rough around the edges, which is typical of again of movies uh, of the time. Uh, it's still, you know, there are still masterful moments in that movie. 
And again, Hitchcock uses a lot of tricks that he borrowed from the from from expressionist cinema or the expression expressionist cinema of of uh, of, of the German uh, school. And also the revelation of the killer's identity and his motive for killing another man took me by surprise. It's very tragic and the truth about the killer and his motives, it's very timely. Uh, I don't want to, you know, ruin the ending, but when you watch the movie, you will, you, you will understand what I'm talking about. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very tragic, it's very touching, and it's, it's very timely. And the whole film is just warm-hearted and wonderfully realized, and it's a must for uh, Hitchcock uh, aficionados and fans of classic cinema. And if you want to uh, w- know uh, more about Hitchcock, uh, especially his uh, great British black and white movies made in the 20s and 30s, you can go back to uh, episode 13 of this podcast where I talk uh, somewhat at length about some uh, other, uh, a few other uh, Hitchcock movies like Blackmail and uh, Downfall, also two great movies. I think that I want to finish up about murder but by saying that I think that the reason why I really liked murder uh, this time around when I watched it is that I had a chance to watch it or watch a remastered uh, version uh, that's uh, out on Blu-ray. And I have to say, you know, these remastered versions of, of, of classic movies are just revelations. Uh, they are just the greatest investment you can make as a movie lover because new movies that come out on, on Blu-ray or even movies dating back to even the 50s uh, they look great on, on Blu-ray and some of course look better than others but the true magic of, of Blu-rays and, uh, and these restorations really you know, shows with movies made in, in the 1920s and the 1930s because these movies uh, were only available for the past 50 years uh, you know, in very battered, uh, scratchy prints and they did uh, movies like Murder and a lot of black and white and silent movies they did them a huge disservice and by watching uh, you know these movies on again you know scratchy uh, you know prints and because all the DVDs and the VHS copies of Murder for example that were available were terrible so watching it again on Blu-ray is just amazing. It's like watching a new movie. And uh, of course, the, the flaws in the technology are, are more apparent now, but the beauty is also more apparent. And the magic of, of, of this, you know, of this type of movie and of, the, of these old-time uh, techniques is just, they, they, they come alive now. And for a movie fan, just watching Murder on Blu-ray was amazing and I highly uh, recommend uh, that uh, that you go out and track down uh, a copy of Murder on Blu-ray.
I want to briefly touch upon uh, a movie I watched recently and uh, I really didn't like that movie. It's uh, The Batman, uh, released in uh, this year, 2022. And I have to say that I wasn't really looking forward to it because from the trailer or the teaser trailer that that I watched uh, a long time ago and from the the stills that were released and the interviews that uh, were released with Robert Pattinson and the director Matt Reeves before the film came out they just gave me you know a bad feeling about where the filmmakers would be taking the, the, the character of Batman. And honestly, when I watched it, I wasn't disappointed uh, or I wasn't proven wrong when it, when it came to uh, my suspicions. Because, you know, as it turns out, the Batman is a movie that whose purpose I don't really get. It's just miserable. It it turns the the Batman mythology upside down and goes against many, many things that the character of Batman and its creators stood for. It is a politically correct, dull and downbeat movie that leaves the viewer with, with the overriding feeling that Batman... Uh, this version of Batman in this movie is not really worth rooting for. It seems to be interested in, you know, deflating Batman and uh, defanging Batman, for lack of a better term. And it seems to basically have it in for superhero movies, although Batman isn't really a superhero. But Matt Reeves, because he's the one who's you know, mostly to blame. He co-wrote the movie and directed the movie. And he's a very smart filmmaker, so he basically is aware of what he's doing and he knows what he was doing when he was making it. It seems that Matt Reeves was really intent on making a political statement with the Batman and making a movie that is, for better or worse, you know timely and relevant which isn't a bad thing in and of itself but it's just so this movie is just so politically correct and it panders in the worst way possible and to me at least it came across as the least entertaining movie ever made you know say what you will about the the Batman movies of Tim Burton and uh, Joel Schumacher and the terrible Batman and Robin, which I had the misfortune of seeing in, in, in theaters when it came out. But even Batman and Robin in all its silliness and, you know, in its, all its overdone visuals and, uh, you know, uh, over-the-top color schemes and, uh, you know, camp uh, style, even Batman and Robin was at least entertaining in a very silly way because it didn't take itself seriously. But the Batman 
uh, starring pa- Robert Pattinson and directed by Matt Reeves. It's just a movie that basically, it's basically a very lame, downbeat, nihilistic thriller that's, you know, it's too long and too dark and uh, and it just happens to feature Batman in it as a character and the Batman in this version he is again as I said it, you, you can't root for him and it's deliberate the, the, the writing directs you in that way and the dialogue directs you in that way because they they want to portray him as a very flawed kind of character and um, and as some some kind of, of vigilante that you shouldn't be rooting for uh, and these themes, to be honest, uh, have been dealt with before, in, in, in much, 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 in a much, much better way, in, in Frank Miller's, uh, you know, uh, 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 the Frank Miller uh, graphic novels, like Batman Year One, for example, or the Dark, the Dark Knight Returns, and even in in, uh, in Batman Year Two by Mike Barr. But the way Matt Reeves deals with the, with these uh, issues here, it's just too politicized and it is too lame and downbeat. And I just didn't like this movie at all. As a Batman fan, as a lifelong Batman fan, I just I thought it was just a sorry excuse for a Batman movie. And I hated that someone would use the Batman character in such a way to make a statement that has mostly nothing to do with Batman. I, for one, will go back to Tim Burton's Batman or Christopher Nolan's rousing uh, Dark Knight trilogy, uh, movies that are much more interested in telling a good story than preaching and trying to basically cut Batman down to size. Or you can go read the late great Dennis O'Neill's uh, novelization of Batman Nightfall, which is one of my favorite Batman novels. So when it comes to Batman, there's so much good stuff out there. And 2022's The Batman sure ain't one of them. I'd like to do something a bit different with the podcast uh, which I I, I didn't really want to do when I started out this podcast which is you know do one of these top 10 things but I really love the films of John Carpenter and I I miss him terribly I miss him as a filmmaker because he hasn't made a film in over 10 years now since the 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 very disappointing the word which came out in 2011 i think so i'm gonna break my own rule and uh, i'm gonna do one of these top 10 lists i'm gonna talk about my top 10 favorite john carpenter movies Uh, so in this episode i'm gonna touch upon the number 10 on my list which is John Carpenter's Vampires released in 1998 
I didn't catch uh, this one in theaters uh, when it came out. I had to wait for it to come out on DVD. And I grabbed the copy as soon as it came out. I couldn't wait to just, you know, uh, unwrap it and remove the, the shrink wrap and just pop it into my, my DVD player. And I didn't even have a DVD player at the time. I think I only had a DVD-ROM uh, you know, a uh, player uh, that was attached to my uh, PC for those who, rem- who remember uh, these ancient things. So I popped it in and I watched it and I remember that watching uh, Vampires for the first time, it was such a strange experience because it, it, it you know, it hit me as a a very different type of John Carpenter movie because the way it, the the way the the, the he the, the opening scene was cut in a very you know f- I'm not going to say flashy but kind of 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 a of a quick cutting style that uh, isn't really typical of uh, of 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 Carpenter's work and the music uh, score was also very you know, it was like a, a Western a cowboy score, something that uh, he hadn't really done before, or at least uh, in, in that in that manner. And as I watched the movie, uh, I was just taken aback by how dark and violent and nihilistic uh, it was, and how unlikable the characters uh, were, uh, even the lead character, or especially the lead character, uh, Jack Crow, the vampire hunter, played uh, by uh, James Woods, who was obviously having a great time uh, doing that movie. But watching it, I I had the feeling that, I don't know, there was something very negative about that movie, and after it, uh, after the, you know, the I finished watching it, and as I was watching the credits, I felt that it left a kind of a bad taste in my mouth. But I just, you know, left it there uh, on on my shelf, and I think I rewatched it a couple of rewatched it a couple of days later, and the second time I think was a little bit better. And then I had a chance to watch it, I think, a couple more times after that. And it never really became uh, one of my absolute favorites. But the reason why I put it on the list in the number 10 spot is that I think it is the last great John Carpenter movie. And it's also one of his riskiest and uh, most eccentric uh, movies. Listening to the commentary on the DVD and uh, reading uh, interviews with him, and I've read a lot of interviews uh, uh, about about vampires with John Carpenter, and I've read almost every single book uh, written about Carpenter or or that features interviews with with Carpenter. And after taking all that in, I think that what John Carpenter wanted to do uh, with that movie is basically strike back at the political correctness of the 90s uh, for better or for worse and he wanted to make a statement and that's why the movie features uh, more nudity than is usual in, in his movies and a lot more gore and violence 
than is, is, is usual in, in his movies. Uh, it's a very angry movie. It's a very dark movie. And it's somewhat, it has some, you know, like <laughs> kind of a, a mean streak uh, or a mean streak of dark humor running underneath. But it's also very misogynistic and... Uh, and the way that Carpenter deals with uh, Cheryl Lee's character, uh, the prostitute Katrina, I think her name was, and I'm a huge, fa- a huge fan of Cheryl Lee's uh, work, and I think she's a brilliant actress, and she was brilliant in Vampires, and of course uh, she's mostly known for her work with David Lynch, especially in Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. But the way he dealt with her character, the, abu- the abuse that uh, she goes through in that movie is very disturbing. Um, but visually, the movie is stunning, and it has some terrific uh, music uh, composed and uh, performed by Carpenter and uh, uh, a great band with him. And it features a lot of his you know, uh, cornerstone themes like... Uh, like uh, themes that he got from Howard Hawks and Westerns, like uh, loyalty between partners and, uh, you know, the the man against uh, the, the machine, basically. In this case, it's the church. And, uh, of course, everybody, anybody who watches uh, Carpenter's movies knows that he... Uh, he he doesn't really like organized religion, and he's an atheist, and uh, he doesn't really... In, in, in almost all of his movies that feature a priest, the priest is always a bad guy or uh, or, or someone who's very flawed uh, as a human being, like the priest character in The Fog and uh, the priest character in uh, Village of the Damned, played by Mark Hamill. That was uh, a very over-the-top villain. And, of course... The whole idea of vampires is that the, the the church the church the Catholic Church is the bad guy, and it's actually uh, the reason why vampires exist. It's it's a very like messed up plot that never made any sense, and Carpenter himself admits that he doesn't really understand the plot because he adapted it from a novel called Vampires. Uh, it's a, it's a it's a terrible novel actually that I couldn't I couldn't even finish. So it has some of his basic themes of, uh, you know, the church as the villain and uh, his problems with organized religion and uh, his idea of the sole uh, hero or anti-hero that has to do the right thing. Uh, these, you know, existentialist uh, themes that he uh, that he likes. So it features his styles. It features many of his uh, themes. So that's why... I like it because it's, uh, it's, it, it, it has his fingerprints all over it and it's visually stunning. But it is a very flawed film in many ways and uh, it really showed the beginnings of his decline as a filmmaker and uh, you, you could sense it while watching it that th- there was this anger uh, that was like taking over his filmmaking. Uh, so it didn't really come as a surprise to me when he quit uh, uh, making movies, basically. 
Uh, I don't know where that anger comes from exactly. He he has mentioned that uh, he, he had a lot of problems with the uh, studios and he got ju he just got tired of the game basically. Uh, but also thematically, the, the the anger in his movies and the nihilism uh, just kept you know it became overwhelming, ba uh, really. Uh, and it's a strand that has run through many, many of his movies, you know, The Thing and Prince of Darkness and The Mouth of Madness and uh, many of his movies. And even Escape from New York, uh, John Carpenter himself has, uh, has described uh, Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. as movies that deal with nihilism. But they were always, you know, balanced by, by his, the, the energy of his filmmaking and the beauty of, of, of his technique and visuals. But later on, you know, you could feel his, you know, his enthusiasm waning and his, you know, kind of the darkness taking over. And I think that made the movies a bit too hard to, to you know, they made the movies a, a bitter pill to swallow, basically, not as enjoyable as his earlier work. So that's my take on Vampires, uh, which sits on the number 10 spot on my top 10 favorite John Carpenter movies. And uh, stick around for my uh, number 9 in the next uh, pocket edition of the uh, podcast. I'd like to end this episode with a clip featuring the late, great Vangelis, uh, who passed away uh, recently. In this clip, he basically improvises this terrific piece of music uh, for a show. I think that show, uh, I think it was a Greek TV show. And he just, you know, this this clip shows him, you know, sitting behind his, his gear, you know, the, the, uh, some scary looking synthesizers and uh, just improvising this brilliant piece of music. And this was uh, around the time he made the, uh, the Blade Runner soundtrack, one of his uh, most famous works and a brilliant piece of work. So the sound of, the, of this... Uh, piece that he improvises is, is very reminiscent of his work on Blade Runner. So I want to end this episode with this piece of, uh, of music and uh, as a tribute to, to Vangelis. And uh, again, uh, thank you for joining me on this episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. And please join me again.
You've been listening to The Dark Fantastic Podcast.